Welcome to Church History for Everyone, a podcast that brings to life the stories of the saints of generations gone by. From Athanasius to William Carey, and from Nero's persecutions to the Great Awakening, we provide a digestible and challenging look at the figures and events that have shaped church history and, in turn, changed the world. Now, here's your host, Christopher Hume. In 1603, when William Bradford was about 13 years old, Queen Elizabeth dies and James becomes the King of England and Scotland. And it's right around this time in William Bradford's life that he is about to make the life-altering decision to start skipping the state-sanctioned Church of England worship services. To say that Bradford was skipping church wouldn't be quite right, for he himself would say that though he was skipping the man-made, watered-down Anglican church services, He was choosing instead to gather with the true people of God and hear the word of God proclaimed with passion and power. And the story of William Bradford leaving the Church of England, and in many ways the story of his life, can be summarized with an outline of three men, three men who powerfully changed and impacted William Bradford. The first man is Richard Clifton. This is the first Puritan preacher that Bradford sat under. Second man is John Robinson, the man who would become Bradford's pastor for over a decade and shape so much of his thinking. And the third is William Brewster, the man whom Bradford would embrace as a father and who would remain by Bradford's side for the next 30 years. And so today, as we consider Bradford's transition from a conforming Church of England member to a dangerous, seditious separatist, we will look at how these three men entered into his life at just the right time and encouraged him to follow God's word, no matter the cost. Now, in our last episode, we considered how at a young age, God opened Bradford's eyes to the truth of his word and provided him with resources to read and study. So the foundation of God's word and church history has been laid in young William Bradford's heart by reading the Geneva Bible and Fox's Book of Martyrs. And Bradford is already questioning the disconnect between the words of scripture and church history and the religion of his uncles and other Church of England conformists. And it's at this time that a young boy from a neighboring village invites Bradford to attend a church service in a nearby town where a man named Richard Clifton is preaching. And so Bradford is more than willing to skip church with his uncles to attend this church service where a Puritan preacher is teaching God's word. And in Richard Clifton, young Bradford found a man full of wisdom and experience in living out the principles of God's word that Bradford had been reading about. Bradford would later describe Clifton as a grave and fatherly old man when he left England having a great white beard. And in meeting with Clifton and associating himself with those who were seriously desiring to follow the commandments of God and worship the Lord Jesus Christ according to the word of God, Bradford had his first encounter with opposition to true religion. He had read about it in Fox's Book of Martyrs, but now he was about to experience it. And both Richard Clifton and John Robinson, whom I'll introduce in a moment, had been trained at Cambridge, where William Perkins, the great Puritan of the 16th century, had influenced many future Puritans and separatists. And in looking back at these events in his journal, Bradford actually quotes William Perkins. And Perkins said this, and this is what Bradford was about to experience in his own life. 
Here's what William Perkins said. Religion has been amongst us these 35 years, but the more it is disseminated, the more it is condemned by many. Thus, not profanity or wickedness, but religion itself is a byword, a mocking stock, and a matter of reproach. So that in England at this day, the man or woman who begins to profess religion and to serve God must resolve within himself to sustain mocks and injuries as though he lived among the enemies of religion. This was the case with Bradford. He had come to profess true religion and to serve God. And his uncles and those in the community, especially in the religious community, opposed this. And much the same happens today. Nominal Christianity is acceptable, but true religion is viewed with disdain and mockery. While time changes many things, we sometimes make the mistake of thinking people and communities in the past, in William Bradford's day, for example, were fundamentally different than today. In many ways, though, they weren't. Human nature remains the same, and as Perkins noted in the 16th century, and Bradford and others experienced in the 17th century, the true Christian often lives as if among enemies of religion, even among those who claim the name of Christian, but have no desire to serve God and obey his law word. And so Bradford began to experience the disdain and mockery of others in absenting himself from the Church of England services to gather together with saints who were to go to the Word of God and find their marching orders for all of life. Now, in his compelling biography of William Bradford, Bradford Smith, who's actually a descendant of Bradford, reminds us that the separatists added nothing to theology, yet in church polity, they created a revolution. You see, the men and women gathering to hear Richard Clifton preach believed in the Reformed Calvinistic doctrines concerning God's sovereignty, man's depravity, and the grace of God in salvation. In these matters, they could have accepted the Anglican Church's doctrine. However, it was their commitment to applying the Bible to all of life, especially concerning matters of church polity, that set them on an unavoidable course away from the state-sanctioned church. Now, Richard Clifton would soon be joined by the second man in our summary here, John Robinson. Robinson was a young Puritan minister who had left the state church because he could no longer remain for conscience sake. Bradford describes him as that famous and worthy man, John Robinson. The church that was to be formed in Scrooby would be led by Richard Clifton, but Clifton would soon leave for Holland and John Robinson, who was Clifton's assistant, would remain the pastor. So within a few short years after Bradford begins going to hear this Puritan Richard Clifton preach, the believers that were meeting had decided they could no longer remain in the state-approved church. Now, among their concerns were the regulated worship practices that were dictated by the king and his bishops. Clifton, Robinson, and others were convinced that the gross darkness of popery was still a force in the Anglican church services and that the sweet simplicity of the New Testament church had been lost. These separatists rejected the requirement to read approved prayers from the Book of Common Prayer and instead believed that their prayers to God should be from their heart and from their own mind. More serious, however, was the tyranny exercised by King James and the Anglican bishops. This struck right at the heart 
of what Bradford called the freedom of the gospel. And Pastor John Robinson, in a cutting statement that actually hints at arguments against Presbyterianism as well, concluded that the church polity of the Anglican Church was the same as that of Rome, the only difference being that the Pope, the head, had been cut off. And to top it off, Robinson lamented and Bradford concurred the Church of England was a profane mixture of persons and things in the worship of God. It was a confused heap in which unbelievers often outnumbered true believers. In characteristic wit, John Robinson noted that all one has to do is hire a house within an Anglican parish, and he becomes a member in good standing in the church, no matter if he professed to be an atheist, a heretic, a sorcerer, or a blasphemer. Robinson saying all you have to do is have a zip code within the Anglican parish and you're a member. But John Robinson and William Bradford, just like Penry and Barrow before them, believed that membership in the church ought not to be based on where you live, but on your profession of faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and repentance from sin. And so in these men, we see not only the desire for independent church government, which would be championed, of course, by Congregationalists in the Savoy Declaration, men such as John Owen, and also by the Reformed Baptists in the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith. But we also see the seeds for the argument of regenerate church membership. Now, at least two separatist churches were formed in the area surrounding Osterfield during Bradford's teenage years. The one which Bradford would settle into met in a town called Scrooby, a town within walking distance of Bradford's Osterfield home. The group met in the home of the third man of our summary, William Brewster. William Brewster was a man who had traveled the world as the personal secretary of one of Queen Elizabeth's top diplomats. And to William Brewster, the idea of freedom to worship Jesus Christ as the Bible commands was experienced in a powerful way when he witnessed the Dutch Protestants laying down their lives for their religious freedom in Holland during his travels as an aide to Queen Elizabeth. And he, like John Robinson and Richard Clifton, had been seasoned with the seeds of grace and virtue at Cambridge University. And despite being in the court of the Queen, who opposed Puritanism, Bradford was committed to the principles of Puritanism, and he refused to conform no matter the cost. And so here was a man who had become the most influential person in William Bradford's life. It may be said of William Bradford that Richard Clifton the preacher planted the seed, John Robinson the pastor watered it, and William Brewster the mentor cultivated it for 30 years. Here was the father figure that Bradford had been missing for most of his life. Now, when the boy who had first invited Bradford to hear the Puritan preaching of Richard Clifton later abandoned the faith, becoming a wicked apostate, Bradford was already too firmly established to turn aside from his own course, which now lay so clearly before him. And Bradford's words beautifully summarize the desire and passion of the men and women who had gathered together in Scrooby, who had counted the cost and had chose to endure what God would will in abandoning the state-sanctioned religion of King James and to gather together instead in a church committed to the word of God. And here's what Bradford wrote. He said, those whose hearts the Lord had touched with heavenly zeal for his truth shook off this yoke of anti-Christian bondage and as the Lord's free people joined themselves together by covenant as a church in the fellowship of the gospel to walk in all his ways made known or to be made known to them according to their best endeavors 
whatever it should cost them, the Lord assisting them. And he adds a final sentence, and that it would cost them something the ensuing history will declare. The ensuing history that Bradford is referring to is the tale of what happened next to this small group of believers who were meeting secretly in William Brewster's house in Scrooby, England. The church William Bradford remembered years later was not permitted to remain in peace. They were soon to face the wrath of King James and his Anglican bishops. They were to be hunted and persecuted on every side until, in the words of William Bradford, their former afflictions were but as flea bitings in comparison. The future, of course, was unknown to these men, women, and children as they met in Seagret and Brewster's house. But here was a unique group. In William Bradford, there was a young teenager becoming a man in the midst of conflict, persecution, but also incredible growth in the knowledge and application of God's Word. In John Robinson, there was a 30-year-old preacher of God's Word with a sharp intellect, a powerful mind, and passion to expound the Word of God. And in William Brewster, there was a seasoned 40-year-old mentor to guide the young men and women who were about to make history. Here, then, was the nucleus of the pilgrims. Here, in Scrooby, England, was the starting place of the pilgrims. Scrooby, it has rightly been said, must be regarded as the cradle of Massachusetts, for it was the birthplace of the fellowship, the passion, and the ideas that would establish Plymouth Colony over a decade later. But the trip to America was still a long way off. And the first trip that these men and women would make was to another almost as foreign and strange land. But that trip, we will soon see, was not going to be easy as they would face serious opposition from King James, even though he had said that if he finds any who refuse to go to the Church of England services, he will harry them out of the land. He will force them out of the land. When these separatists would try to leave England, in fact, King James would do just the opposite. Thank you for joining us for today's episode of Church History for Everyone. For information about following Jesus, the King of History, visit reformedhope.com and be sure to join us for our next episode. Until then, go live out your story as a servant of the risen Savior.